The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit. It's in partnership with iGlobal Forum. And uh, we are in the Lottie New York Palace in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, who knows more about real estate in New York and really around the world? Uh, I don't know who except Larry Silverstein. He is the chairman of Silverstein Properties, and he joins us now. Silverstein, thanks very much for being with us. Pleasure. Uh, you know... Um, I was looking at the background, and I'm wondering if, you know, when you first started out uh, in real estate uh, from Brooklyn with your father, did you ever imagine that you'd be building Four Seasons properties and the World Trade Center and all these buildings around the world? Did you ever imagine that this is what real estate would become? Never in a million years. It was beyond, beyond, beyond visualization. What brought you into the industry? What, made, what attracted you to it? Well, I saw a... Uh, I saw something that, that seemed exciting, and uh, at, the, at the early stages, uh, I, I functioned as a real estate broker, but it became obvious to me that the money wasn't in brokerage at that time. It was much more in ownership, and so with time, I simply decided somehow we had to get, move, move toward owning real estate and ultimately developing real estate. And that's where we are today. Uh, Mr. Silverstein, I want to talk about the World Trade Center site. Uh, I know that you had a lease uh, in the World Trade Towers, a 99-year lease uh, right ahead of September 11th. And then after that, you've devoted yourself to really rebuilding the site um, and the tower that now has become really a uh, headquarters for media, for modern media in some ways. Yes, it is. Um, where is that? How, how well occupied is that? And um, what do you envision for that whole region going forward? Well, first of all, we've leased about six, six plus million feet of space in the buildings down there, and there's more to go. Um, and certainly, uh, media is a very significant occupant of space in that part of the world. Uh, media technology, um, the Tammy, the Tammy areas, um, and so it's a uh, uh, finance is still there, but is not the dominant factor in Lower Manhattan today as it was not very long ago. I don't think of media, though, as having the same degree of money as finance. Uh, we see media companies going out of business left and right. So I have to wonder, uh, you know, what the sustainability of this trend is and uh, what your optimism is that there could be more businesses that come either to New York, say an Amazon, uh, coming to the tower, which I'm sure you'd be excited about, or, or others, uh, given the, uh, the high cost and uh, some of the challenges to the industry. You know, the, uh, the high cost is certainly there. But one of the things that 
you can do when you're building new buildings uh, is build into those buildings the latest in technology and provide for tremendous densification of real estate so that you could put more bodies, more people uh, into the same square footage that then existed years ago. And so the, e- the economics of new construction, while it may sound more expensive, is actually becoming much more efficient and less expensive per square foot of occupied space. What's the biggest mistake that people who want to get into real estate make? I, I think they uh, consistently underestimate the amount of capital to require to do the you things You need more they money than you think. Oh, invariably. When Isn't you, that like a story for life, though? Uh, well, it, it <laughs> Children, can be, certainly. <laughs> children, right, indeed. But, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention is uh, the negotiating prowess, because you're, you, were not the fr- you were not the selected as the, uh, the person to take on World Trade Center, right? You, that th- is correct. How did that happen? Well, the, uh, the winning bidder uh, was a public company, and they ran into all kinds of problems when it came to negotiating a lease with the Port Authority. Port Authority asked them to do certain things, which is a public company they had difficulty doing. Uh, and as a private entrepreneur, I had no difficulty with it at all. And so it just became a question of time until they realized it was not going to work. They dropped out, and then we came along and closed it. So right now we're broadcasting from Midtown, but I know that you yourself are moving from Midtown uh, to downtown. And that makes me wonder, especially as I pass empty storefronts, do you think that the shot, uh, that the, this sort of tide has shifted for Midtown and uh, that downtown will see an even bigger resurgence? I, you know, I, we're, we're in an era where uh, e-commerce uh, is playing an increasingly important role. And so uh, people are buying more today online than they ever had before. Um, I, think it's, I think what you're going to see is a, is a diminution in the number of branch stores uh, than we've had in the past. Um, and so uh, retail will adjust uh, to this reality uh, just as they've always adjusted in the past. They're going through some more difficult times now. They'll figure it out. Well, but what does that mean for all the commercial real estate? What does that mean for all of the storefronts that have been empty? Uh, I think with time, rents on some of those shops will come down. Some of those locations will come down. I think the, the locations might find themselves being used differently. We see fat food today, uh, far, far greater dependability on and need for food. And so you see, you see restaurants popping up all over the place. And the truth of the matter is, younger people, for some reason, they don't like to cook anymore. They like to eat out. I could give you a few reasons. <laughs> and so uh, you find, we find restaurants uh, increasing uh, in frequency and, and presence. Uh, and so in many cases, those shops will, will be replaced by food of one type or another. And so fast foods, lots of fast food, so forth, different types of foods. It's a, it's a fascination. You'll have that uptown as well as downtown. We're certainly seeing it downtown. There's no question of that. Based on what you know or have heard about the president's uh, efforts for a tax reform, uh, what can you tell us about your views on tax reform? And is it necessary? And what would it do if indeed we do get some kind of tax reform? Well, uh, it's, it's totally premature uh, to be able to opine on the, the ramifications of this thing because you don't know what state what status it's going to have uh, you need far more definition far more specificity uh, than you can than we have today to be able to give you a concrete answer to that question so you don't you don't even pay attention to the noise 
it's uh, there's a lot of noise at this point. Uh, it'll become more, sim- more less symbolic and more meaningful as the days go forward. Real quickly, I'm wondering, from a foreign investment standpoint, how concerned are you about curbs on uh, China money leaving the country and what that would do to U.S. real estate? Well, uh, there's certainly a diminution on the amount of money that can come out of China into America. But at the same time, there's such vast amounts of wealth that have been created around the world. So much of that wealth is coming to America as a safe haven. And so the first place it finds itself is usually New York. And then it starts fanning out to other major urban centers around the country. So I think we're going to do just fine here. Larry Silverstein, thank you so much for joining us. Larry Silverstein is chairman of Silverstein Properties Incorporated in New York City, and uh, he is a lion of the real estate industry, uh, certainly in New York as well as around the world. I want to turn our attention to uh, real estate, in particular, the security around that real estate in a place like New York City. And here to join us is Governor David Patterson, the former governor of New York. So I'd love to to get your sense on uh, the cost of some of these anti-terrorism measures that are being increasingly taken in New York City. And uh, from your perspective, whether they have been uh, sufficient to uh, adequately protect us. Well, we were just talking about that in a session and... Uh, my colleague, Jeff Merdler, uh, who was uh, one of my appointees to the Port Authority, talked about the fact that the new one World Trade Center, the first seven floors don't have any people on it. They're concentric layers of concrete. And that um, the reinforcements dwarf what existed on Towers 1 and 2 at the World Trade Center uh, years ago. These are massive amounts of money. An extra billion dollars was spent just on security alone at the World Trade Center and is now being replicated uh, at, uh, you know, other uh, edifices that are being developed around the city. Can I just play devil's advocate for for just a moment? Because all of this security, while uh, at the macro level, we understand that it may be necessary. But it is, in a sense, non-productive spending. In other words, it's concrete, as you just described. It's many layers of security. At the same time that we have municipalities going bust. So is there a contrast between what we are securing, which seems to be deteriorating in some cases, and the amount of money that is being spent on security services? Uh, That is a brilliant question. It's a sacrifice. In many respects, what we're finding, let's think about it. Two years ago in France, there was an attack on a restaurant. And then uh, one month after that, in December of 2015, there was an attack on a a holiday party that was actually in in a regular office building. So terrorists could wreak a lot of havoc by not even going near the World Trade Center. They can do it in the subway system. There's no way we could secure uh, 700 miles of track in the New York City subway system. So your point is very well taken, but I guess psychologically, if there was another attack on one of the major buildings, the Empire State Building or uh, uh, Madison Square Garden or one of these places, the first thing everybody would say is, why didn't someone do something about it? 
Governor Patterson, I, I wonder if you could enlighten us about whether it's underappreciated how many potential threats have been thwarted to New York City and how many threats you're aware of that were imminent that didn't happen. I'm aware of about 90% of, of, for every one uh, situation that happened, for instance, when I was governor, there was a bombing um, on 42nd Street. Uh, it, it didn't. It wasn't effective, but it but it occurred. Uh, but I uh, told the group this morning that uh, I was told there would be an attack on the New York subway system during the Thanksgiving holidays in 2008. And you know what? My staff came in my office the day before Thanksgiving, and they were all looking down. And they were glum. I thought, Oh my God, we've got another September 11th situation. And it turned out. They wanted to tell me about the attack in Mumbai when they blew up the hotel and uh, in India. And um, it was a horrible situation, terrible tragedy. We sent supplies uh, from New York State. I felt guilty of others, but I was relieved that New York had been spared. Th there are all types of threats that we never know about. We have to thank our New York City Police Department, the state police, and our national government for their successes. Can you just speak a little bit about the threat, the fiscal threat, to states and municipalities? We've got a potential bankruptcy right now at Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, it, it, it's overwhelming. Um, there was the little uh, uh, city, uh, Pritchard, uh, Alabama. There was the uh, uh, municipality in, uh, near Orange County in California. Um, we are going... Uh, we're, uh, Governments are spending more and uh, then they had to because of all types of myriad problems that exist now that then existed before. There's no doubt about that. And we're going hopelessly back into debt. And I hope that's not an, another prelude uh, to a government crisis like we saw in 2008. Do you think that's possible? I mean, from uh, leaving out finance, I think just from a, a government perspective, the amount of debt that's being run up by cities and states is incredible. Right here in, in, in New York, at one time, about 10 years ago, the MTA was the fifth largest uh, debtor in the country. Uh, California was number one, New York State, New York City with two and three, Massachusetts number four, and then the MTA. It's as if they are a state. And so the point is that um, um, we don't manage money right. uh, the way we should. Well, I want to thank you for your service to the state and to the country. Uh, former Governor of New York, uh, David Patterson, joining us here at the Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit for Eisner Amper in partnership with iGlobal Forum. You're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
We are broadcasting live from the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit. It's in partnership with iGlobal Forum, and we are broadcasting from the New York Palace Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Joining us now is uh, really our host uh, for the uh, whole morning. I want to appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, Charlie Weinstein. He is the uh, chief executive of Eisner Amper. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having. Uh, thank you for covering us this morning. And good morning, Lisa and Pim. Great to be. Great to be be here. You know, one of the topics. I wonder if we could just jump right in. I, I want to understand a little bit more about the Center for Family Business Excellence because I think that many people who either own companies or are equity holders in either private companies or in real estate deals, this is something that you're trying to build for them. Center for Family Business Excellence is. Um, a new initiative that we've started at the firm. Lisa Stewart is the executive in our firm who's responsible for family uh, family businesses. And family biz, the Center for Family Business Excellence really has its focus on the challenges that family-owned businesses and privately held companies have on succession planning and transition. And Lisa has been doing this for 20 years. We're very excited to be able to bring this initiative to our clients. And especially in the real estate industry where family-owned real estate uh, provides a challenge for uh, leadership transition. You know, as we were talking uh, before this segment, one thing that struck me was that the main topic of the day is somewhat different than I thought it would be. I thought it would be about taxes, frankly, because of the tax plan uh, that was released by President Trump. But it sounds like that's not the that's not the case. In fact, it's actually the technological revolution that's kind of underpinning the real estate uh, market right now. Can you give us a sense of what that is? Absolutely. And so it's very interesting. We are a leading accounting and advisory firm. Uh, but even Eisner Amper has morphed into a technology-focused firm. And that's impacting real estate in so many ways. And so if you think one way in particular would be blockchain. And so what's coming in blockchain is going to have a tremendous impact on title and ownership, mortgage recording, um, all of these things that perhaps uh, were impacted in the uh, meltdown in 2008 those are going to be impacted in a big way uh, by blockchain. So when you say impacted, does this mean that there's going to be um, more profits or or sort of uh, fewer costs attached to purchasing uh, a home with a mortgage? Or does that mean that it's just going other places? I mean, what's the significance of this for uh, buyers of real estate? Uh, To me, the significance is transparency. And when you have transparency, you have more effective and efficient markets. And we will see uh, the lowering of risk and we will see more investment dollars come into this sector as risk gets lowered. All right. Now, I I know you wanted to move away from taxes, but I'm sorry. I'm just going to have to focus you there because I know, for example, that uh, you were one of the attendees at the White House at a business uh, council meeting with uh, President Donald Trump. And, of course, taxes is in the headlines right now. I wonder if you could speak about this idea of succession planning and the estate tax for businesses and then maybe just segue, if you can, into the whole 1031 exchange uh, uh, business because that may be on the chopping block, at least that's according to some uh, people in Washington. Well, so estate tax, if uh, and there are very few details out yet in terms of uh, tax reform and what impact it's going to have. Uh, estate tax will go away. And so that will change um, if, if the proposals uh, are filled in the way that, that 
they're spoken about now, uh, estate tax will go away. That will have a significant, significant impact on succession planning for families especially. And so we're looking forward to more details coming out, and hopefully uh, we will uh, see some changes in the estate tax. Um, in terms of specifics, 1031 exchanges, uh, limitations on uh, business interest deductions, all of these things are going to have a major impact. It's a little bit uncertain at this point if they're actually going to go through. So, What's your, what's your expectation? You look skeptical. Um, I believe that we'll have tax reform, but uh, interest groups are lobbying already. I think the plan is to keep details light until the proposal is ready to be voted on. Interest groups are hard at work. Well, I'm wondering from the uh, mortgage interest deduction standpoint, whether you think that could potentially be on the chopping block. Uh, certainly sounds uh, as though they're going to keep it for individuals. But business interest uh, deductions sound like they're going to be limited. And if that's the case, that'll have an impact on corporate real estate and, and real estate investment. In other words, commercial property values could exactly. deteriorate pretty rapidly. Absolutely. Is there a, uh, a misnomer about uh, the industry that people do deals for tax reasons? I mean, is taxes are a secondary issue or are they primary? I like to think tax planning is your friend, and so it's a component of every aspect of deal making in real estate, and savvy uh, real estate investors take advantage of the opportunities in the tax code as it stands today. Um, it'll be interesting to see with tax reform, if we have tax reform, what those opportunities will be going forward. That's our business. Charlie Weinstein, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, having us here today. Charlie Weinstein is Chief Executive Officer of Eisner Amper, which is based in New York and uh, facing a, a pretty uh, rapidly changing landscape for at least the underbelly of the real estate industry as so many uh, industries are uh, facing disruption from technological advances. Uh, the bond market is experiencing a bit of a sell-off, at least the U.S. government bond market. You are seeing uh, some of the riskier markets rally a little bit. I want to bring in Mark Brandt, Chief Strategist at Hilltop Securities and Bloomberg Profit uh, for a Bloomberg View site. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to start with, should we care about this sell-off in the bond market? Or will this just be a buying opportunity like all of the other small blips upward in bond yields? I think it's a buying opportunity, Lisa. The uh, technically the <clears throat> lines in the sand are 216 and 232. We're right at the uh, high level of the support resistance line at uh, 2.328 as we speak. And um, I think the uh, our yields in the United States, even though we're the largest economy, the strongest economy, are so much higher than European yields. As long as the central banks uh, keep uh, printing money, which they are way more than the Fed is talking about cutting back, I think uh, yields stay low. Well, Mark Rand, if, if yields stay low, what happens in December if the Federal Reserve raises interest rates? I think the uh, yield curve just uh, flattens uh, further. Uh, we've seen a huge flattening over the last year. As you know, Pim, better than anybody, and, and Lisa, you both know that how many people have 
come into the media, we're going to have 3% to yield uh, in the 10-year, and it just has not taken place, and I don't expect it to anytime soon. Well, you know, I think that one uh, change in the equation could be a tax plan, and President Trump did unveil his proposal yesterday, at least the outline. Um, and, and there's some speculation that the sell-off that we're seeing is an expectation that the federal deficit will deepen. Therefore, even if we don't see the growth, we will see uh, some inflationary pressures, or at least we'll see that the U.S. is becoming less creditworthy. How much do you buy into that argument? Um, there's no question, Lisa, that the cause of the market's uh, sell-off the last few days has been the president's tax plan. I do not think the country's going to become less creditworthy. It just depends on how much growth you think we're going to see from lower taxes to offset this. And uh, I think the growth will, there will be growth. And, you know, what the number is is very difficult to tell, but I think that's the offset for the tax cuts. And also, of course, people will have more money to spend, uh, which should be a positive for the economy. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about demand from institutional clients right now? What are they looking for? Yeah, the institution, the big institutional clients, and I deal with quite a number of them directly, are outside of the box, if you will, out of the box. But what they're looking for, they're, they're not getting enough yield in traditional public investments. And most of them are doing uh, uh, privates in the debt market or private equity or real estate. They're doing all kinds of things to try to uh, lock in yield because they cannot get it in the uh, public debt markets. Well, you talk about locking in yield. Does that lock in their money because of limited liquidity in many of these investments? Well, a lot of these uh, big institutions, especially the life insurance companies, don't need much liquidity. Uh, there you have a longer time horizon, and uh, the yield that they're getting, the uh, cash flow, is much more important to them than uh, liquidity. So, Mark, you were saying that um, there sort of seems to be this tense balance here between commentative monetary policy globally, as well as your expectation that the tax proposal would potentially increase growth and thus inflation and thus uh, potentially uh, longer term yields uh, being higher. I'm just wondering, what's the range here? What's the lowest that the 10-year Treasury could go, in your opinion, in this environment? And what's the highest uh, that the yield could go? Well, I've, you know, it depends on external factors such as North Korea blowing uh, some jet in America out of the sky. You'd see a 2% yield in uh, about uh, three minutes. Uh, short of something going very wrong, uh, you're probably looking at a 206 on the low side and a 252 or so, 253 on the uh, high side. Uh, I do not think that there's any way, given the amount of money that the central banks are printing. The issue here, Lisa, is you have to follow the money. The Fed is talking about a very minor cutback uh, in uh, their balance sheet, while at the same time, the 11 central banks of the world, according to Bloomberg data, are now about $21.4 trillion in assets, and it's growing at about $300 million a month. So as long as the central banks globally are adding, keep adding money to the system, uh, you're not going to see any big uh, reversal in yields, in my opinion. Just quickly, Mark Grant, uh, once again, a December rate increase from the Federal Reserve, yes? 
I don't think so. I think that they're going to uh, look at the economy and stand pat, though I'm certainly in the minority uh, opinion. We'll have to see what happens. Thank you very much. Uh, You're quite welcome. Our chief strategist uh, from Hilltop Securities is uh, based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.